Section fourteen of Catherine Lauderdale, Volume two, by Francis Marion Crawford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter twenty nine. Catherine spent more time than necessary over dressing for dinner on that evening, not because she bestowed more attention than usual upon her appearance, but because there were long pauses of which she was scarcely conscious although the maid reminded her from time to time that it was growing late. The result, however, was satisfactory, in the opinion of her assistant, a sober-minded Scotch person of severe tastes, who preferred black and white to any colours whatsoever, and thought that the trees showed decided frivolity in being green, and that the woods in autumn were positively improper. It was undoubtedly true that the simple black gown, without ornament, and with very little to break its sweeping line, was as becoming to Catherine's strong beauty as it was appropriate to her frame of mind. It made her look older than she was, perhaps, but being so young, the loss was almost gain. It gave her dignity a background and a reason, as it were. Her face was pale still but not noticeably so and her eyes were quiet if not soft only a person who knew her very well would have observed the slight but steady contraction of the broad eyebrows which was unusual as a rule if it came at all it disappeared almost instantly again she remembered afterwards as one remembers the absurd details of one's own thoughts that when she had looked into the mirror for the last time she had been glad that her front hair did not curl and that she had never yielded to the temptation to make it curl as most girls did she had been pleased by the simplicity of the two thick black waves which lay across the clear paleness of her forehead like dark velvet on cream white silk she forgot the thought instantly but later she remembered how severe and straight it had looked and the consciousness was of some value to her as the least vain man taken unexpectedly to meet and address a great assembly may be momentarily glad if he chances to be wearing a particularly good coat the gravest of us have some consciousness of our own appearance and be our strength what it may when it is appropriate to peer in the wedding garment it is good for us to be wearing one catherine stopped at her mother's door as she descended the stairs Mrs. Lauderdale was dining at home, and the Lauderdales dined at eight o'clock, so that she was still in her room at ten minutes before the hour. Catherine knocked and entered. Her mother was standing before the mirror. The door which led to her father's dressing-room, by a short passage between two wardrobes built into the house, was wide open. Catherine heard him moving some small objects on his dressing-table you're late child said mrs lauderdale not turning for as catherine entered she could see her reflection in the mirror are you going to take jane with you if not i wish you'd tell her to come here as you go down i let you have her because i knew you'd be late no answered catherine i don't want her she's only in the way it's the van der waters you know good night mother good night darling enjoy yourself you'll be late of course they'll dance or something yes but i shan't stay i'm tired good-night again catherine was going to the door when her father appeared from his dressing-room serenely correct as usual but wearing his black tie because no one was coming to dinner 
"'I want to speak to you, Catherine,' he said. She turned and stood still in the middle of the room, facing him. He had a letter in his hand. "'Yes, papa,' she said quietly, not anticipating trouble. "'I'm sorry I could not see you earlier,' said Alexander Jr., coming forward and fixing his steely eyes on his daughter's face. "'But I hadn't an opportunity, because I was told that you were asleep when I came home. "'This morning, as I was leaving the house as usual, a messenger put this letter into my hands. "'It has a special delivery stamp on it, and you will see that the mark on the dial edge stands at 8.45 a.m., Consequently, the boy who brought it was dilatory in doing his duty. It is addressed to you in John Ralston's handwriting. Why didn't you send it up to me, instead of keeping it all day? inquired Catherine, with cold surprise. Because I do not intend that you shall read it, answered her father, his lips opening and shutting on the words like the shears of a cutting machine. Mrs. Lauderdale turned round from the mirror and looked at her husband and daughter. It would have been impossible to tell from her face whether she had been warned of what was to be done or not, but there was an odd little gleam in her eyes of something which might have been annoyance or satisfaction. "'Why don't you intend me to read my letters?' asked Catherine in a lower tone. "'I don't wish you to correspond with John Ralston,' answered Alexander Jr., you shall never marry him with my consent, especially since he has disgraced himself publicly, as he did yesterday. There was an account of his doings in the morning papers. I dare say you've not seen it. He was taken home last night in a state of beastly intoxication by two policemen, having been picked up by them out of a drunken brawl with a prize-fighter. To judge from the handwriting of the address on this letter, it appears to have been written while he was still under the influence of liquor. I don't mean that my daughter shall receive letters written by drunken men, if I can help it. Show me the letter, said Catherine, quietly. I'll show it to you, because, though you've never had any reason to doubt my statements, I wish you to have actually seen that it has not been opened by me, nor by anyone. My judgment is formed from the handwriting solely, but I may add that it is impossible that a man who was admittedly in a state of unconsciousness from liquor at one o'clock in the morning should be fit to write a letter to Catherine Lauderdale or to any lady within six hours. The postmark on the envelope is 7.30. Am I right? He turned deliberately to Mrs. Lauderdale. Perfectly, she answered with severe conviction and it must be allowed that, from his point of view, he was not wrong. He beckoned Catherine to the gaslight beside the mirror, and held up the letter, holding it at the two sides of the square envelope, in the firm grip of his big, thin fingers, as though he feared lest she should try to take it. But Catherine did not raise her hands, as she bent forward and inspected the address. It was assuredly not written in John's ordinary hand, though the writing was recognisable as his, beyond doubt. There was an evident attempt at regularity, but a too evident failure. It looked a little as though he had attempted to write with his left hand. At one corner there was a very small stain of blood, which, as everyone knows, retains its colour on writing paper, even under gaslight, for a considerable time. It will be remembered that John had hurt his right hand. Catherine's brows contracted more heavily. She was disgusted, but she was also pained. She looked long and steadily at the writing, 
and her lips curled slightly. Alexander Lauderdale turned the letter over to show her that it was sealed. Again, where the finger had hurriedly pressed the gummed edge of the envelope, there was a little mark of blood. Catherine drew back very proudly, as from something at once repulsive and beneath her woman's dignity. Her father looked at her keenly and coldly. "'Have you satisfied yourself?' he inquired. "'You see that it has not been opened, do you?' "'Yes.' "'I will burn it,' said Alexander Lauderdale, still watching her. "'Yes.' He seemed surprised, for he had expected resistance, and perhaps some attempt on her part to get possession of the letter and read it. But she stood upright, silent, and evidently disgusted. He lifted his hand and held the letter over the flame of the gaslight, until it had caught fire thoroughly. Then he laid it in the fireless grate. The room, like all the rest of the house, was heated by the furnace, and with his usual precise interpretation of his own conscience's promptings, he turned his back on it, lest by any chance he should see and accidentally read any word of the contents as the paper curled and flared and blackened and fell to ashes. Catherine, however, was well aware that a folded letter within its envelope will rarely burn through and through if left to itself. She went to the hearth and watched it. It had fallen flat upon the tiles, and one thickness after another flamed, rose from one end, and curled away as the one beneath it took fire. She would not attempt to read one of the indistinct words, but she could not help seeing that it had been a long letter, scrawled in a handwriting even more irregular than that on the envelope. The leaves turned black one by one, rising and remaining upright like black funeral feathers, till at last there was only a little blue light far down in the heart of them. That, too, went out, and a small final puff of smoke rose and vanished. Catherine turned the heap over with the tongs. Only one little yellow bit of paper remained unconsumed at the bottom. It was almost round, and as she turned it over, she read on it the number of the house. That was all that had not been burned. "'I'm glad to see that you look at the manor in its true light,' said her father, as she stood up again. "'How should I look at it?' asked Catherine coldly. "'Good night, mother. Good night,' she repeated, nodding to her father. She turned and left the room. A moment later she was on her way to the van der Waters house, leaning back in the dark, comfortable brougham, her feet toasting on the foot-warmer, and the furs drawn up closely round her. It was a bitterly cold night, for a sharp frost had succeeded the snowstorm after sunset. Even inside the carriage Catherine could feel that there was something hard and ringing in the quality of the air which was in harmony with her own temper. She had plenty of time to go over the scene which had taken place in her mother's room, but she felt no inclination to analyse her feelings. She only knew that this letter of John's, written when he was still half senseless with drink, was another insult, and one deeper than any she had felt before. It was a direct insult, a sin of commission, not merely of omission, like his absence from the ball on the previous night. She supposed, naturally enough, that he would not appear at the dinner-party, but at that moment she was almost indifferent as to whether he should come or not. She was certainly not afraid to meet him. It would be far more probable, she thought, 
that he should be afraid to meet her it was a quarter past eight when she reached the van der waters and she was the last to arrive it was a party of sixteen almost all very young and most of them unmarried a party very carefully selected with a view to enjoyment an intimate party because many out of the number were more or less closely connected and related and it was indicative of the popularity of the lauderdales that amongst sixteen young persons there should be four who belonged more or less to the lauderdale tribe there was catherine there was hamilton bright the crowdies had been omitted because many disliked crowdie himself there was little frank minor who was a near relation of the van der waters and there stood john ralston talking to ruth van der water before crowdie's new portrait of her as though nothing had happened Catherine saw him the moment she entered the room and he knew as he heard the door open that she must be the last comer since everyone else had arrived without interrupting his conversation with miss van der water he turned his head a little and met Catherine's eyes he bowed just perceptibly but she gave him no sign of recognition which was pardonable however as he knew since there were many people between them and she had not yet spoken to Ruth herself, who, with her brother, had invited the party. The elder van der Waters had left the house to the young people, and had betaken themselves elsewhere for the evening. John continued to talk quietly as Catherine came forward. As he had expected, he had found her name on the card in the little envelope which had been handed to him when he arrived, and he was to take her into dinner until late in the afternoon the brother and sister had hoped that john would not come and had already decided to ask in his place that excellent man mr brown who was always so kind about coming when asked at the last minute then frank minor had appeared with an evening paper containing dr routh's letter and had explained the whole matter so that they felt sympathy for john rather than otherwise though no one had as yet broached to him the subject of his adventures Naturally enough, the Van der Waters both supposed that Catherine should have been among the first to hear the true version of the story, and they would not disarrange their table in order to separate two young people who were generally thought to be engaged to be married. There were, of course, a few present who had not heard of Dr. Routh's justification of John. Catherine came across directly towards Ruth Van der Water and greeted her affectionately john came forward a little waiting to be noticed and to shake hands in his turn Catherine prolonged the first exchange of words with her young hostess rather unnecessarily and then since she could not avoid the meeting held out her hand to john looking straight and coldly into his eyes you're to take miss lauderdale in you know mr ralston said miss van der water who knew that dinner would be announced almost immediately and that Catherine would wish to speak to the other guests before sitting down yes i found my card answered john as Catherine withdrew her hand without having given his the slightest pressure it was a strange meeting considering that they had been man and wife since the previous morning and could hardly be said to have met since they had parted after the wedding Catherine, who was cold and angry wondered what all those young people would say if she suddenly announced to them at table that john ralston was her husband but just then she had no definite intention of ever announcing the fact at all john only partly understood for he was sure that she must have received his letter 
but what he saw was enough to convince him that she had not in the least believed what he had written and had not meant to answer him he was pale and haggard already but during the few minutes that followed while Catherine moved about the room greeting her friends the strong lines deepened about his mouth and the shadows under his eyes grew perceptibly darker a few minutes later the wide doors were thrown back and dinner was announced without hesitation he went to Catherine's side and waited while she finished speaking with young mrs van brew his right arm slightly raised as he silently offered it Catherine deliberately finished her sentence nodded and smiled to dolly van brew who was a friend of hers and had been in some way concerned in the famous darsh affair three or four years ago as mrs darsh's intimate and confidante then she allowed her expression to harden again and she laid her hand on john's arm and they all moved in to dinner i'm sorry said john in a low cold voice i suppose they couldn't upset their table Catherine said nothing but looked straight before her as they traversed one beautiful room after another going through the great house to the dining-room at the back You got my letter I suppose said John speaking again as they crossed the threshold of the last door But one and came in sight of the table gleaming in the distance under soft lights Catherine made a slight inclination of the head by way of answer, but still said nothing John thought that she moved her hand as though she would have liked to withdraw it from his arm and he for his part would gladly have let it go at that moment it was a very brilliant party of the sort which could hardly be gathered anywhere except in america where young people are not unfrequently allowed to amuse themselves together in their own way without the interference or even the presence of elders young people born to the possession in abundance of most things which the world thinks good and as often as anywhere too to the inheritance of things good in themselves besides great wealth such as beauty health a fair share of wit and the cheerful heart without which all else is as ashes near one end of the table sat frank minor who had taken in mrs van brew and who was amusing everyone with absurd stories and jokes but small change that was bright and new ringing from his busy little mint at the other end sat teddy van der water a good fellow at heart in spite of his eyeglass and his affectations discussing yachts and centreboards and fin-keels with fanny treherne a girl who sailed her own boats at newport and bar harbour and who cared for little else except music strange to say nearly opposite to katherine and john was hamilton bright between two young girls talking steadily and quietly about society but evidently much preoccupied and far more inclined to look at katherine than at his pretty neighbours he had seen ralph's letter and had moreover exchanged a few words with ralston in the hall having arrived almost at the same instant and he saw that katherine did not understand the truth ralston had begun by apologizing to his friend for what had happened at the club but bright who bore no malice had stopped him with a hearty shake of the hand and a challenge to wrestle with him any day for the honor of the thing in the hall of the club or anywhere else frank minor too from a distance watched john and katherine and saw that the trouble was great though he laughed and chatted and told stories as though he were thoroughly enjoying himself in reality he was debating whether he should not bring up the subject which must be near to everyone's thoughts 
and give John a chance of telling his own story. Seeing how the rest of the people were taking the affair, he would not have done so, since all was pleasant and easy. But he saw also that John could not possibly have an explanation with Catherine at table, and that both were suffering. His kindly heart decided the question. It would be a very easy matter to accomplish, and he waited for a convenient opportunity of attracting attention to himself, so as to obtain the ear of the whole large table before he began. He was perfectly conscious of his own extreme popularity, and knew that, for once, he could presume upon it, though he was quite unspoiled by a long career of little social successes. John and Catherine exchanged a few words from time to time, for the sake of appearances, in a coldly civil tone, and without the slightest expression of interest in one another. John spoke of the weather, and Catherine admitted that it had been very bad of late. She observed that Miss van der Water was looking very well, and that a greenish blue was becoming to fair people. John answered that he had expected to hear of Miss van der Water's engagement to that foreigner whose name he had forgotten, and Catherine replied that he was not a foreigner, but an Englishman, and that his name was Northallerton, or something like that. John said he had heard that they had first met in Paris, and Catherine took some salt upon her plate and admitted that it was quite possible. She grew more coldly wrathful with every minute, and the iron entered into John's soul, and he gave up trying to talk to her, of which she was very glad. It was some time before the occasion which Minor sought presented itself, and the dinner proceeded brilliantly enough amid the laughter of young voices and the gladness of young eyes. For young eyes see flowers where old ones see but botany, so to speak. Catherine had not believed that it would hurt her as it did, nor Ralston that love could seem so far away. They turned from each other and talked with their neighbours. John almost thought that Catherine once or twice gathered her black skirts nearer to her, as though to keep them from a sort of contamination. He was on her left, and he was conscious that in pretending to eat he used his right arm very cautiously, because he did not wish even to run the risk of touching hers by accident. Now in the course of events it happened that the subject of yachts travelled from neighbour to neighbour, as subjects sometimes do at big dinners, until, having been started by Teddy van der Water and Fanny Traherne, it came up the table to Frank Minor. He immediately saw his chance, and plunged into his subject. "'Oh, I don't take any interest in yacht races, compared with prize-fights, since Jack Ralston has gone into the ring,' he said, and his high, clear voice made the words ring down the table with the cheery, laughing cadence after them. "'What's that about me, Frank?' asked John, speaking over Catherine's head as she bent away from him towards Russell Van Brew, who was next to her on the other side. "'Oh, nothing. Talking about your round with Tom Shelton. Tell us about it, Jack. Don't be modest. You're the only man here who's ever stood up to a champion prize-fighter without the gloves on. And it seems you hit him, too. You needn't be ashamed of it.' "'I'm not in the least ashamed of it,' answered Ralston, unbending a little. He spoke in a dead silence, and all eyes were turned upon him, but he said nothing more. Even the butler and the footman, every one of whom had read both the morning and the evening papers, paused and held their breath, and looked at John with admiration. 
"'Go ahead, Ralston,' cried Teddy Vanderwater from his end. "'Some of us haven't heard the story, though everybody saw those horrid things in the paper this morning. It was too bad!' Catherine had attempted to continue her conversation with Russell Van Brew, but it had proved impossible. Moreover, she was herself almost breathless with surprise at the sudden appeal to Ralston himself, when she had been taking it for granted that every one present, including his hosts, despised him, and secretly wished that he had not come. Van der Water had spoken from the other end of the table. Frank Minor responded again from the other, looking hard at Catherine's blank face as he addressed John. "'Tell it, Jack,' he cried. "'Don't be foolish. Everybody wants to know how it happened.' Ralston looked round the table once more, and saw that everyone was expecting him to speak, all with curiosity, and some of the men with admiration. His eyes rested on Catherine for a moment, but she turned from him instantly, not coldly as before, but as though she did not wish to meet his glance. "'I can't tell a story by halves,' said he. "'If you really want to have it, you must hear it from the beginning. But I told Frank Minor this morning. He can tell it better than I.' "'Go on, Jack. You're only keeping everybody waiting,' said Hamilton Bright from across the table. "'Tell it all. About me, too. It will make them laugh.' John saw the honest friendship in the strong Saxon face, and knew that to tell the whole story was his best plan. "'All right,' he said. "'I'll do my best. It won't take long. "'In the first place, you won't mind my going into details, Miss Van der Water?' "'Oh, no, we should rather prefer it,' laughed the young girl from her distant place. "'Then I'll go on. "'I've been going in for reform lately. I began last Monday morning. "'Yes, of course you all laugh, because I've not much of a reputation for reform or anything else. "'But the statement is necessary, because it's true, and bears on the subject. "'Reform means claret and soda, and very little of that.' It had rather affected my temper, as I wasn't used to it, and I was sitting in the club yesterday afternoon, trying to read a paper, and worrying about things generally, when Frank there wanted me to drink with him, and I wouldn't, and I didn't choose to tell him I was trying to be good, because I wasn't sure that I was going to be. Anyhow, he wouldn't take no, and I wouldn't say yes, so I suppose I behaved rather rudely to him. "'Like a fiend,' observed Minor from a distance. Exactly. Then I was called to the telephone, and found that my Uncle Robert wanted me at once, that very moment, and wouldn't say why. So I came back in a hurry, and as I was coming out of the cloakroom with my hat and coat on, I ran into Bright, who generally saves my life when the thing is to be done promptly. I suppose I looked rather wild, didn't I, Ham? Rather. You were white and queer altogether. I thought you had it bad. There was a titter and a laugh as the two men looked at one another and smiled. "'Well, you've not often been wrong, Ham,' said Ralston, laughing too. "'I don't propose to let my guardian angel lead a life of happy idleness.' "'Keep an angel and save yourself,' suggested Minor. "'Don't make them laugh till I've finished,' said Ralston, "'or they won't understand. "'Well, Ham tried to hold me, and I wouldn't be held. He's about twenty times stronger than I am, anyhow, and he got hold of my arm. Wanted to calm me before I went out, as he thought. I lost my temper. "'Your family's been advertising a reward if it's ever found, ever since you were born,' observed Minor. "'Suppress that man, can't you, somebody?' 
cried Ralston good-naturedly. So I tripped Bright up under Miner's nose, and there was Crowdie there, and a couple of servants, so it was rather a public affair. I got out of the door and made the park, Uncle Roberts, you know. Being in a rage, I walked, and passing the Murray Hill Hotel, I went in, from sheer force of habit, and ordered a cocktail. I hadn't more than tasted it when I remembered what I was about, and promptly did the Spartan dodge, to the surprise of the bartender, and put it down and went out. Then Uncle Robert and I had rather a warm discussion. Unfortunately, too, just that drop of whiskey— Forgive the details, Miss Van der Water, you know I warned you— just that drop of whiskey I had touched was distinctly perceptible to the old gentleman's nostrils, and he began to call me names, and I got angry, and being excited already, I dare say he really thought I wasn't sober. Anyhow, he managed to knock my hat out of my hand and smash it. Ask him the first time you see him, if any of you doubt it. Oh, nobody doubts you, Jack, said Teddy Vanderwater vehemently. Don't be an idiot. Thank you, Teddy, laughed Ralston. Well, the next thing was that I bolted out of the house with a smashed hat and forgot my overcoat in my rage. It's still there, hanging in Uncle Robert's hall. And, of course, being so angry, I never thought of my hat. It must have looked oddly enough. I went down Fifth Avenue, past the reservoir, nearly a mile in that state. I met you, observed Russell Bambrew. I was just coming home, been late downtown. I thought you looked rather seedy, but you walked straight enough. Of course I did, being perfectly sober and only angry. I must have turned into East 40th or 39th when I stopped to light a cigar. The wax-light dazzled me, I suppose, for when I went on, I fell over something. That street is awfully dark after the avenue. And I hurt my head and my hand, this finger. He held up his right hand, of which one finger was encased in black silk. Catherine remembered the spot of blood on the letter. Then I don't know what happened to me. Dr. Ralph said I had a concussion of the brain and, and lost the sense of direction, but I lost my senses anyhow. Have any of you fellows ever had that happen to you? It's awfully queer. I have, said Bright. I know. You're all right, but you can't tell where you're going. Exactly. You can't tell which is right and which is left. You recognize houses, but you don't know which way to turn to get to your own. I lost myself in New York. I'm glad I've had the experience, but I don't want it again. Do you know where I found myself and got my direction again? Away down in Tompkins Square. It was ten o'clock, and I'd missed a dinner party, and thought I should just have time to get home and dress and go to the assembly. But I wasn't meant to. I was dazed and queer still, and it had been snowing for hours, and I had no overcoat. I found a horse-car going uptown and got on. There was nobody else on it but that prize-fighter chap, who turns out to have been Tom Shelton. It was nice and warm in the car, and I must have been pretty well fagged out, for I sat down at the upper end and dropped asleep without telling the conductor to wake me at my street. I never fell asleep in a horse-car before in my life, and didn't expect to then. I don't know what happened after that, at least not distinctly. They must have tried to wake me with kicks and screams or something, for I remember hitting out, and then a struggle, and I was pitched out into the snow by the conductor and the prize-fighter. Of course I jumped up and made for the fighting man, and I remember hearing something about a fair fight, and then a lot of men came running up with lanterns, and I was squaring up to Tom Shelton. 
I caught him one on the mouth, and I suppose that roused him. I can see that right-hand counter of his coming at me now, but I couldn't stop it for the life of me, and that was the last I saw, until I opened my eyes in my own room and saw my mother looking at me. She sent for Dr. Routh, and he saw that I wasn't going to die and went home, leaving everybody considerably relieved. But he wasn't at all sure that I hadn't been larking when he first came, so he took the trouble to make a thorough examination. I wasn't really hurt much, and although I'd had such a crack from Shelton, and the other one when I tumbled in the dark, I had pretty nearly an hour's sleep in the horse-car as a set-off. Then my mother brought me things to eat. Of course all the servants were in bed, and she'd rung for a messenger in order to send for Ralph. And I sat up and wrote a long letter before I went to bed, though it wasn't easy work, with my hand hurt and my head rather queer. I wish I hadn't, though. It was more to show that I could than anything else. There, I think I've told you the whole story. I'm sorry I couldn't make it shorter. It wasn't at all too long, Jack, said Catherine, in clear and gentle tones. She was very white as she turned her face to him. Everyone agreed with her, and everyone began talking at once. But John did not look at her. He answered some questions put to him by the young girl on his left, and at once entered into conversation at that side, without taking any more notice of Catherine than she had taken of him before. End of chapter 29